Colossians chapter 2, listen to the word of the Lord. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. This is the word of the Lord. You were dead, Paul says. You were dead, not sick, not broken, not wounded, not a mess, dead. You needed more than counseling. You needed more than inner healing. You needed more than education. You needed more than wisdom or insight or teaching. You were dead. You needed resurrection. And you say, well, what do you mean we were dead? We were very much alive, weren't we? We were physically alive. What does it mean when Paul says, you were dead? What story do you instantly think of when I say this? Do you instantly think of Adam and Eve in the garden and God saying, you may eat of all the trees of the garden except for this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if, the, if you eat from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat of it, you shall. And then the serpent comes and says, You will not surely die. I'm sure I told you all this before. One time in Columbus, Ohio, I was having a conversation with a Wiccan priest wearing a tall man, wearing a big black robe and carrying a walking stick like he was a wizard or something. And he says to me, your father's a liar and my father tells the truth. And I say, hold up, what now? And he says, your father said, that if they ate the fruit, they would die. My father said their eyes would be opened. Look at your Bible. Who told the truth? I said, Holy Spirit, help me give me wisdom. Tell me what to say. I am honestly a little lost right now, Father. Right? In those moments, don't you just pray, Holy Spirit, help me. What do I say, Father? What, 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 what? Like, we read the Bible and we see, oh, there's spiritual darkness. But this dude was, like, embracing it. He's like, oh, yeah, I got the cane, I got the robe. And I'm like, this is a weird conversation. He's literally saying, my father in heaven's a liar, and Satan is his father, and he's a truth teller. So you look in Genesis, and what do you find? Did they die the day they ate the fruit? Evelina nailed it. Yes but not like that. And when they ate the fruit, were their eyes open? Doesn't the Bible say their eyes were opened? It does, but not in the way they would have wanted. Their eyes were open. They knew the knowledge of good and evil. They began to think for themselves. They began to measure for themselves. They began to judge for themselves. They began to live for themselves. And the first thing they saw is that they were, and they were, And because they were ashamed, they were also afraid, which caused them to hide. 
If you ever want a fun Bible study, just sit for a long time with the questions God asks people. You can take a whole week and sit with the question, where are you? Is he really asking? Is he really asking about physical location? So they were still alive, right? But something died. Something woke up that was never meant to wake up and something died that was never meant to go away. Something died. And ever since then, we've had religious proclivities. Ever since then, we've had a sense of shame, isolation, independence. Ever since then, we've been living from self, for self, based on self-evaluation. And a lot of folk go to church to become experts in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that's going to help. Right? Come on, just nod if you can't understand it. Just go along with it. Right? You go to church to become twice the son of hell, more judgmental, more self-righteous, more sure of what the Bible says so that you know you're right because you think the right thing and those people who think the wrong thing are the bad guys and we got to beat them. When the whole point is to get reconnected back into the tree of life so that we're under grace and we receive mercy and we know love and we stop thinking for ourselves, but we know him who is the truth and we actually enter into and being anchored into grace and love and we stop thinking for ourselves and instead we love and trust and receive love and become love. So what died? Paul says you were dead in what? You were physically alive, but something else was wrong. He says, you were dead in your actions, and you were dead in your nature, but God, but God. God made you alive. Wait, hold up. When? When did that happen? Maybe it's when you prayed real hard. Maybe it's when you fasted. Maybe it's when you memorized enough Bible. Maybe it's when you finally believed the right thing, grew up in the wrong church, but now you joined the right church. Maybe it's when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost and got tongues. Wrong. It ain't nothing you do. It ain't nothing you do. That's good English. (laughs) Who made you alive? Was it you? Was it your religion? Did you cross the gap? Did you pray hard enough? Did you fast hard enough? Did you repent hard enough? Did you get there? Jesus, when you were dead, when I was dead, When we were his enemies, he laid hold of us. He became one with us. He went to the cross. And he put that old dead self to death. And he rose from the dead. And when he died, I died. You died. And when he rose, I rose. You rose. He did that. I didn't do that. He got rid rid of that whole mindset, that whole self, that whole thing that, that that came awake. That thing that our eyes were opened and we became like God, knowing good and evil. And the image was lost. 
They were naked and ashamed, so he was hung naked on a cross, ashamed, scorned, beat with sticks. Prophesy, Christ, who hits you. Put in purple robes of royalty to mock his kingship. It wasn't just the physical beatings. It was the emotional shame. He became shame. You know he was naked, right? The little loincloth they put on him and the Catholic crucifixes are for your sake because they know Christians can't handle the truth. There's a little Jack Nicholson moment right there. You can't handle that. But he was naked. The point of crucifixion is humiliation. And look what, and look what Paul says. Paul says in the cross, he stripped the powers and principalities of all their weapons. Everything they thought they did to him was his victory. This whole thing is like, what? Okay. God made you alive. All through the Old Testament, you see God saying, look, this old covenant is just sort of a placeholder. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 says that he gave the law as a placeholder, as a temporary external stopgap measure. It's just externally restraining evil. He calls it a superintendent. A, uh, a Russian grandma, a babushka. Someone who's not really there to fix the problem, but just to sort of keep you in check. But a day's coming, a day's coming when God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and it won't be like the old covenant, and this is why he says, Jeremiah 30, I wrote it in my notes, so I better look, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people, and it won't be like the old one, because the old one they broke. And you go, wait a minute, hold on, the difference is they broke the old one? How are you going to achieve that? If they broke the old one, how are you going to keep them from breaking the new one? He says, my laws were external. They were on tablets of stone. But in the new covenant, I'm going to give them new hearts. I'm going to put my laws within them. I'm going to take their unresponsive, uncircumcised, unresponsive, insensitive, hardened hearts, and I'm going to cut those out. We're going to have a surgical heart transplant. We're going to take away your nature. The nature is the problem. It's not knowledge, not education, not a lack of inner healing, not all these things that we run after. It's the nature that's the problem. He says, I'm going to cut out the old nature and I'm going to put in a new nature. You're going to love me. You're going to want me. You're going to, you're going to celebrate me. You're going to thirst for me. You're going to wake up in the morning and go, oh, thank you, Father, for today. I get to know you today. You're going to be back in Genesis 1 and 2 again. You'll love me. You'll fear me. You'll know me. And it won't be like the Old Testament where I pour out my spirit on just a few people, maybe a king, maybe a prophet, and they'll come to the others and say, know the Lord. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all the people. Men, women, rich, poor. God plays no favorites. He only looks at the heart, right? He doesn't look at what people look at. And in the new covenant, he's going to pour out his spirit on everyone, give everyone a heart transplant. And it's no longer going to be us trying to bridge the gap. That thing inside of us that wants to live. There's something dead in every heart, but because every single human was made for more. Every heart, every human was made for more than this. And everyone kind of knows it. And if they don't know it, they at least grieve it without fully knowing how to put it into words. And Jesus says, I'm going to do the thing. 
I'm gonna give you back the thing that you intuitively sense is wrong but don't know how to put into words. I'm gonna put that back in you. And love relationship's gonna come back online. And then you'll all know me from the least to the greatest. That's the whole promise of the new covenant. And he did it. He, take us, he takes us back to the tree of life. Just like the Lord told me the one day when I was just walking out of the bathroom. I wasn't even praying. Nothing was going on spiritual. And he said, the two trees in the garden represent the two covenants, law and grace. I said, hmm? What you talking about? That sounds like heresy. And then I started to look at it, think about it, meditate on it. And the more I thought about it, the more it messed me up. Whoa, he's right. It's kind of silly, right? Of course he's right. That's how the Lord works with me. He'll give me one sentence, but in that one sentence, if I stick with it, he'll give me a new theology. He'll give me, I could write a whole 300-page book on it if I just stay with that one sentence, start to track it. He has an efficiency of words, doesn't he? We're kind of addicted, though, to law. We're, we're addicted to legalism. We're addicted to right, our own righteousness. We're addicted to proving to ourselves what we're afraid isn't true instead of receiving what he says is true as true. We're kind of addicted to it. We're addicted to earning instead of enjoying and abiding. We're addicted to fixing instead of trusting and surrendering. And we're addicted to being afraid because we're not anchored in him and measuring the wrong things as the most important things. That's a whole separate sermon. We're not going there. Look at this. I'm just going to list off like, what is this here? Six things that Jesus, that God did through the cross. Well, let me just quick say this. Christianity is not a religion. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a religion. Christianity is not you believe certain things, you live a certain way, you attend certain services. That's not Christianity. Christianity is an indwelling Lord. And if it isn't an indwelling Lord, you don't have it yet. Now, the services and the doctrines and the lifestyles are very helpful at cultivating the relationship with the indwelling Lord. They're very helpful at rightly received. They help strengthen our connection. The connection, another word for that connection is faith. Anything that strengthens your faith strengthens your connection. There's the big conversion to Jesus. We're dead, then we come alive. And then the whole rest of our life of following Jesus is being converted a thousand times to Jesus' way of thinking on all manner of issues. Who's with me? So I'm still being converted because I'm saved. I'm already perfectly holy and righteous because I'm in Christ, but I'm being made holy. I'm born again, but I'm still maturing into fullness of his image since I am born again. Okay, what did I say, five things? Six, wow, you guys pay close attention. Through Jesus' cross, God... Number one, forgave all our trespasses. Number two, erased the record of wrongs that stood against us. Number three, set the law aside, nailing it to the cross. Number four, disarmed the rulers and authorities. 
That's a big one. Disarmed, I like that, right? Chris Valentin says he's like a, a bobber or a buoy. He's disarmed and defeated. He has no arms and legs. All he can do is bob. If he was in a pool, that would be his name. Okay. But he still has a mouth, so he can still say stuff. He can still tempt and accuse and condemn, but he can't hurt you. He can't touch you. It's right there in 1 John. The evil one, whoever's in Christ, the evil one cannot harm him. You like that picture of the bobber? I love it. I love it. Yeah. He's disarmed and defeated. If he were in a pool, his name would be Bob. Love that joke. That was five. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that was four. Disarmed the rulers and authorities. Number five, Jesus made a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. And number six, he triumphed over them, putting them to open shame. Let's take them in order. Number one, through the cross, God forgave all our trespasses. How many of you know the greatest need and the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did in his whole ministry? The greatest miracle he ever did forgiveness. He walks up to a paralyzed man on a mat. Well, actually, his friends <laughs> dug, a, dug a hole in a roof and lowered him down, which, by the way, if you're the homeowner, it's like, hey, yeah, I mean, are, are my insurance premiums going to go up? Um, Jesus, looking at his friend's faith, say, your sins are forgiven. And you go, sins are forgiven? Bro, he's on a mat. And the Pharisees are present because the Pharisees are always present. But they never want to learn. They're only there looking for dirt to fuel their resentment. Hey, Gabe, can you go get me a, a water? Or better yet, a Dr. Pepper? Whichever is convenient for you, buddy. Hey, I like sugar. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, why? How does Jesus know their hearts? Because he's God or because he's a man in right relationship with God and is flowing in a gift of the Holy Spirit called the word of knowledge? It's the second one. Yeah, he is God, but he didn't use his unfair advantage as God while he was incarnated on this earth, not once. Anywho, otherwise he couldn't say, follow me. Hmm, something to think about. He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And then he knows they're offended and he goes, oh, face palm. Guys, just so you know, it's hard. is it harder to say your sins are forgiven or is it harder to say, get up and walk? And they go, it's harder to say, get up and walk. All right, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Take your Mac, roll it up, go home. And the guy does. He almost acts as though he wasn't going to heal the guy. But I'll tell you, his first priority is the man, the whole man, the total package. You can live a full life from a wheelchair, y'all. You can't live a full life covered with condemnation and shame eaten alive by the things you've done wrong and the things done wrong to you. Forgiveness doesn't just cover the sins you did, it covers the sins done to you. Because one of the sins that you carry is unforgiveness toward those who have harmed you. And if God can make it like you've never sinned, surely he can make it like you've never been sinned against. 
No Dr. Pepper? Thanks, buddy. My nutritional specialist in the back. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle of all time. Forgiveness ushers you back into the cleanness, to the rest, to the peace, to the friendship, to the open-hearted fellowship with God where you no longer resent Him because you fear Him. If you can strip the shame and the forgiveness off, if you can unfor- Let me try it again. Let's see if we can get it right. If you can bring forgiveness home, you can strip the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, and all the false stories we're telling ourselves about who we are based on what we've done. If you can strip all those off, you have a pretty good chance of creating somebody who's wide awake and alive and happy. It's amazing how people's perspective on the world changes when their inner world changes. A lot of people who are negative about others are cynical and negative about themselves first. Okay, but through the cross, God forgave all our trespasses. Through the cross. Through the cross, number two, Jesus, well, I could say God through Jesus, erased the record of wrongs that stood against us. Now that is fascinating. So, you know there's books in heaven, right? And everything you and I ever did is written in them books. But then there's another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. There's two books, y'all. Tell me, I'm not saying this for the first time, right? You read the book, you read the Bible. No hands are up, it's weird. There we go. At least play along, it makes me feel better. There are multiple ways you could keep me on my toes. They used to throw tomatoes. Please don't do that. Jesus erased the record of wrongs. He erased the record of wrongs. I think that's fascinating. Some people say he paid for our sin. I say, no, he didn't pay for our sin. He forgave our sin. There's not, they're not the same thing. If you owe the bank money and the bank forgives your sin, that's different than if somebody else pays the bank what you owe. Sorry to let that hang so long. It's just one of them thoughts that, think, you know, I, I know what we mean when we say Jesus paid it all. We mean it cost him a lot to bring us redemption. It did. But he wasn't paying off the justice of God. God himself was setting aside the old covenant. You know in Romans chapter 7? Remember this in Romans chapter 7? Paul says that y'all were married to the law. What does that mean? God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, gave him the laws. Here's your laws. Relate to me through these. You're married to these laws. And then Paul says, just like if you are married, you make vows till death do us part. And the only way for you to get free of that without sin is somebody dies. Paul makes the point in Romans 7 that Jesus died 
to put the old law system to death so that you could belong to another. You were married to Mr. Law when you were dead. It didn't help. It all, all the law did was tell you what you'd done wrong and never lifted a finger to help you do right. The law serves as turning on the lights and all the cockroaches scatter and you see how messy everything is and you go, this ain't good, turn it off again. But it lifts no finger to help clean up the mess. Jesus died so that we could be, so that the written record of wrongs against us could be set aside. Third one. Well, let me just finish that one. What's forgiven is forgotten. He throws it in a sea of forgetfulness and he never brings it up again. And you go, well, but God's omniscient. He knows everything. How can he not know? Look, of course he knows. But he chooses to have that piece of data that's factually true about your past never come up against you with him ever again. What's forgiven is forgotten. Sometimes I like to try to use that against my wife. It doesn't work. She's still salty at me, and I'm like, I thought, I thought we talked about this, and I thought you forgave me. And then I'm like, well, you're not, a lot, you're not very much like God like that. That's not very... That usually doesn't help, by the way. Don't do that. Don't be like me. I thought what's forgiven was forgotten. I guess there's still some... I'm sure it's somehow her fault that she's still hurt by me, somehow. You guys can see right through my nonsense, right? Okay, good, 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 good. Third point, I gotta finish. It's already 12.02. Through the cross, God set the whole law aside and nailed the law to the cross. Why? Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. It's right in the book. Cursed is everyone who's hung. Why? This is, this is the ultimate of what they would, a Jew would have thought of as being under God's curse. This is, by the way, why the, the cross is such a stumbling block to Jewish people. If, God, if Jesus was really the Messiah, says every Jewish mindset, if, if Jesus is really the Messiah and the Bible says, cursed is who, he who is hung on a cross, there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah because he would be under God's curse. God would never let that happen to the Messiah. Remember when uh, Judas, it says Satan entered into Judas and he went and made a deal with the Pharisees and the scribes? Do you ever think about Judas and why he did that? We know two things about him. He was greedy and he was probably a patriot, a revolutionary violent patriot. His last name, Iscariot, is probably not a name. It's probably a, a nickname. There's a, there's a word called Sicari, the dagger men. They were a violent Bible-based, patriotic group of revolutionaries wanted to take Rome by force with swords. You've put those two factors together and you've got a disappointed man who's given everything in his life to follow a Jesus who didn't pan out and none of his expectations are coming to pass. Plus, he loves money. Scripture says he was greedy and liked to dip into the money pouch. Remember the scene in John chapter 12 where Mary washed... I'm trying to talk as fast as I can. The scene in John chapter 12 where Mary is washing his feet with, a, with an expensive bottle of nard that cost a full year's supply of wages and they are having problems with him, especially Judas. Hey, this should have been sold and the money given to the poor. But he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, only because he was greedy. He's bitter. He's resentful. Just to be clear, the devil can't jump on you and take control of your body against your will. You have to cultivate a heart attitude that makes you open for business and open for influence. And he was resentful and he was bitter and he was disappointed and he was walking in unforgiveness. 
And something has to be done, people. Something has to be done. Because unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness often masquerades as a desire to bring about justice. Anywho, cursed is everyone who's hung on a cross. So what's hanging on that cross? Your report card. It's called the sweetest exchange. He takes all my F's and I get all his A's. He takes all my sins, I get all his righteousness. He takes all my distance and shame, I get all his acceptance and love. Hung right there on that cross. That horrible, terrible torture device. I mean, it's crazy we have it in this church. It's disgusting, it's terrible, it's evil. It's like having an electric chair sitting here. It's like having a hanging noose hanging off the ceiling. It's actually worse than either of those things because it's slower. It's more humiliating. But its meaning in why he was willing to go through it is so beautiful that we put it right here. We switched report cards. Number four, through Jesus, the cross... Through Jesus' cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. Listen, this is a huge point. I've already told you the enemy is disarmed and defeated. So what's his weapon? His weapon is temptation and accusation. And what if you're forgiven? What if you're no longer under law? What if you're no longer being measured by the law? There's nothing left for the evil one to use against you. Unless you don't know it, unless you don't know who you are, unless you don't know what Jesus did, unless you don't know the truth that can set you free, unless you don't know you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, unless you don't know who has already ascended to heaven in the true holy of holies, who's been presented as the slain lamb and the high priest and the, and the sacrifice has been accepted so that the Father sees Jesus and says, ah, here is the intercession. When it says he's interceding for us, it doesn't mean he's praying for us, it means he's standing there as our representative permanently, eternally. The enemy's been defeated because he's been disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And here's a crazy thing. The rulers and authorities, what are the rulers and authorities? You go, oh, well, that's powerful spiritual evil. Yes, but it's also the religious and political leadership. If the rulers and authorities had understood Jesus' glory, they wouldn't have crucified him, says Paul. If they knew. Who? If who? The rulers and authorities. What rulers and authorities? Caiaphas. Herod. Pilate. Marionetted by demonic evil. Guys, the religious powers and principalities and the political powers and principalities have sway over the kingdoms of the earth. This is why I don't care if you vote. And this is why I'm so distrustful of taking the causes of God and equating them with our earthly human political causes. We end up making deals with the devil. Vote your conscience. That's not... I'm not saying you can't vote. I'm saying be super careful how your heart is thinking about the issues of politics. 
because our kingdom's not of this world. And Jesus exposed the powerless, fruitless, evil nature of the kingdoms of this world and how demonic they are. He exposed and defeated and defanged them. Watch. He made a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities. Why? He refuses to fight with the sword when they come to get him with the sword. He refuses to take control. He refuses to do the patriot thing that Judas wants him to do and that the Jews want him to do. He refuses to play that God and country thing. He doesn't go there. He says, if, if, don't you know? He says, don't you know? At any point, I could simply utter a, a simple one-sentence request and my father would release legions of angels to kick butt. But my point is if I become a monster to defeat a monster, your whole system is based on power over and control. You want me to, you, you want me to be just like them but more powerful? That's what you think God is? Just like the broken systems of the world? but just more powerful, just more powerful. God showed his power in the Old Testament. All he did was cause people to run away from him. When his fire comes down on the mountain, everybody wants to run and hide. Oh, no, you, Moses, you speak to him. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go up there. The cross is Jesus saying, I have to let them do their worst so it exposes the demonic nature of the kingdoms of this world. And in that moment, they are revealed for what they are, but God is revealed for who he is. I said this the other night, I was at a Calvinist-Arminian debate and my Calvinist friends were saying, they were saying, you're saying that if God goes through all the drama of salvation from Genesis to Jesus, that unless, that you're saying it's possible since God gives us a choice that Jesus could die and not a single person accept him. And this one guy says, I refuse to worship a God who is so weak he could fail. My professor, Dr. Jerry Walls, gets up. And after a long silence, he says, If God goes to the cross in his son and lays his life down powerlessly in self-giving love for all sinners to reconcile them to a loving father and no one were to respond, It would not have been a failure because for all eternity he would have displayed the manifold perfections of his love for all to see. I was like, can we end the debate? I think it's over. I think I I know what I think now. Public spectacle. They fell right into the trap. Jesus is the bait. The cross is the hook. The demonic fell for it. The powers and principalities fell for it. And in so doing, they not only exposed their nature, but they exposed God's true nature. And now we can't unsee it. External laws and controls, all they ever did was threaten us with hell, threaten us with punishment. Jesus' love actually lets us fall in love. Number six, final point. I got to get off the stage. 
Through Jesus' cross, God triumphs over the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. They stripped him naked and shamed him. They humiliated him. They defeated him. They made him a failure. And they made all his followers feel like fools. But on the third day, they were exposed. Isn't that amazing? I'm not going to do the whole Southern Baptist thing, talking about Jesus going down into hell and (laughs) still makes me laugh. And then Jesus went down into hell and he stormed the gates of hell, took the keys of the kingdom back, and then he did a backflip up over the devil. And God raised him back to life and he bestowed them keys on us. Ha! And said, all authority in heaven given to me. Now make disciples. Fine, I just did it anyway. I said I wasn't going to, and then I did One of these days, I'll channel my T.D. Jakes. You know what I'm saying? I love that guy. All right, go ahead and stand. This might be an encouraging thought for some of us. What looked like the failure of God and the failure of the cause and the failure of all our hopes, because we'd been hoping in some wrong things. We've been looking to Jesus, walking with Jesus, thinking about Jesus and listening to Jesus, but we've been thinking a little bit wrongly about Jesus. Just maybe the thing we think is the worst thing ain't the worst thing. And just maybe he's got this. All right? Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for life from the dead. I ask God that you would open the eyes of our heart to the things they're supposed to be open to and close the eyes of our heart to the things they're not supposed to see. Amen. Amen.